Thanks, guys. Uh, that was fantastic. Thanks for reading God's Word uh, to us this evening. Well, before I begin, I just wanted to let you know uh, that there will not be a question time after uh, the sermon, but please feel free to uh, jot down any questions you have uh, and ask them, ask uh, either me or somebody else about them after the service. Well, I thought I might begin this evening by asking you all a question. The question will hopefully clarify for us Paul's main point in this passage. So I ask you, what would you say to someone who has just become a Christian who then asks you, what do I do now? See, imagine you've had the opportunity of possibly meeting with somebody one-on-one, and uh, you may have read the Bible with them. You have maybe shared uh, your story of faith uh, with them, and the Holy Spirit has done work in their lives, and they have received the Holy Spirit through receiving God's word and with faith, and they have accepted what Jesus Christ has done for them, and then they turn to you and ask you, What do I do now? How do I live? I want you to consider for a moment how you would respond. See, also, perhaps you're a person who's quite new to this whole Christianity thing as well. Maybe you've just become a Christian. Or maybe you've grown up in a Christian family But through the work of the Holy Spirit, you've come to a point now where you're passionate, you're on fire about your faith. And the question that you want somebody to answer for you is, what do I do now? See, I believe it's essential that every one of us here, if we're going to make a difference in this world, if we are going to make disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to have an answer to that question. How would you answer a new Christian who wants to know what they're meant to do next? How do they live? Well, Paul, in this passage, says there's actually two ways that you will likely respond. One enslaves a person, and the other frees a person. One keeps them imprisoned, keeps them held captive under the law, and the other explains to them how they have become an heir according to God's promise and freed by his grace. Paul says it's the same promise of God's grace, his saving work in us, that transformed us from the very beginning. It's this same promise that's actually continuing through our lives. It is powerfully at work in us as we live as Christians. And Paul urges us that we must not turn back to living according to the law and become slaves when we have been made free. And so I thought we might pray that God would help us as we think through this challenge. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, you have given us a promise 
that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we may all be your sons and daughters. Help us to live according to this promise and give us the willingness to have it change the way we live, the way we serve you, and the way we care for others. We ask this according to your will, and in your Son's name we pray. Amen. And so today we are actually continuing a sermon series from the book of Galatians that I started six weeks ago, or or longer than that. And don't worry, if you can't remember what I said six weeks ago, you're not alone. I couldn't remember what I said, so I had to go back and reread it. I had to reread my sermons again to figure out what I actually said. So let's begin by just quickly going back and revising what Paul has said so far to the churches in the region of Galatia. Paul writes this letter because he is concerned about what he is hearing about what's happening within the churches in Galatia. So read with me chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And as he continues with this letter, he continues to remind them of the power of the gospel and that it is not man-made, but it comes from God. He continues in chapter 1, verse 11. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul then explains how this one true gospel is in contrast to what is being taught by the false teachers who are distorting the gospel. And in chapter 2, verse 19, he is explicit as he explains the gospel and how it has impacted his own life. Read with me chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This gospel, this good news, is clearly the work of God, And Paul goes on to explain in the first half of chapter 3 that we have received it, not by anything we have done, but by hearing with faith. And so we must continue to live by this very same gospel. And now when we reach the passage that was uh, read for us today, Paul explains the difference between a promise and the law. And he's really careful to explain to us 
how the promise given to Abraham and the law given to Moses serve different purposes. He wants the Galatians to know that they must live by the promise rather than live under the law. And so when we ask the question, what do we do now? When we answer the question, what do, we, what do I do now? What's next? We must explain to those who ask that we live by the promise rather than by the law. And to begin, I want to actually uh, have us consider the language that is used by God for both the law and the promise. In the promise given to Abraham, God says, I will. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In comparison to the law that was given to Moses, God says, you shall and you shall not. So the law that's summed up in the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, God says, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. And so just from the language that God himself uses for both the promise and the law, we should see that these two things serve a different purpose. And we are meant to realize that the promise that was given to Abraham describes what God is going to do in this world. It's actually God's plan for salvation. He says, I will do it. And the promise says nothing about what we must do. Rather, it says everything about what he will do for us. And so Paul here begins in this section, in verse 15, by giving us a human example so that we can be more clear about his argument, about the difference between the promise and the law. Read with me from verse 15 again. Chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And see, the translation uh, used in verse 15, where uh, Paul says, even with a man-made covenant. This might be kind of confusing for some of us, uh, but in today's culture, we understand uh, this idea as a person's will or their final, their last will and testament. 
And the point that Paul is making here is that the covenant of a person, their will, their plan for their future, what they promise to those who are still alive once they die, it cannot be changed. A person's will is irreversible. Because if you do actually change it, well, then it's not their will anymore, is it? It's not what they have promised. And I wanted to give you a personal example of this. So uh, my grandmother, when she passed away in her will, uh, it became uh, apparent that, um, that she left her house to one of my uncles until he no longer needed it. Now, my uncle actually suffered a brain injury when he was a young boy. And he has permanent brain damage as a result of his, this accident. And the brain injury affects the way he thinks and behaves. And so my grandmother, in her final will, into the last thing that she promised, she left the house to him for as long as he needed it. Now, I don't doubt my grandmother's care for her disabled son. I don't doubt that she was seeking the best for my uncle at that time. But the reality is, is that my uncle should not be living in such a large house by himself. And this has become very clear to my family as time has gone on. And see, it's really difficult for the other members of my family to care for my uncle now because of the way that my, my grandmother's will has been written. See, it's not possible to change my grandmother's will. And so it's still to this day, my grandmother's will has been unchanged. This is the human example that Paul uses here. And he says that if the will or covenant of a person cannot be changed, then how much more are the promises of God unchangeable? See, God's promise is still in effect today. God gave Abraham a promise, a promise that is binding and eternal, a promise that actually has its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ, so that every person who believes in his saving work rather than their own, who trusts in his death and resurrection rather than any good work or merit of their own, any person who does this receives the promised blessing through the Holy Spirit. And skip down to verse 29 with me and read how Paul explains this. Paul says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We receive the promise that God made to Abraham because we are 
his offspring because we are in Christ. And this promise was not altered in any way, even with the introduction of the law that was passed down to Moses, which came some 430 years later. And so Paul here wants the Galatians to understand what it means to live by the promise rather than to live by the law. Because that is actually how we're meant to live. And so Paul explains that to live by the promise means to live by faith in Jesus Christ. And to live by the law means to live by works. Living by the law means that we must do particular things or don't do particular things. And this is what we so often are focused on when someone becomes a Christian. The new Christian knows that they're to change the way they live. After hearing the word and accepting Jesus through faith, they're going to ask, well, what now? How should I live? And they're going to look for us for answers. But too often we explain to them what part of their life needs to change. We tell them things like, no more getting drunk. No more using that sort of language around here. No more sleeping around. Do this, don't do that. And in doing so, the life that we are explaining to them is the life under the law, the life of works. And Paul says this should not be the way that we encourage fellow believers. Instead, he urges us to encourage them to continue to live by faith because of the grace God has lavished upon his people. And as we encourage them in their faith, we are to trust that the Holy Spirit will be at work in them to convict them of their sinfulness and transform their life so that they too might bring glory to God in everything they do. We encourage, the Holy Spirit convicts. Let's look at how Paul explains what we're going to do then with the law, because he actually preempts two questions that, are, uh, that may arise when comparing the promise and the law. Read with me from verse 19. Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. And verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law was given by God for a very different reason and for a very different purpose. The law was given not to be the means of salvation, but to convince people of their need for salvation. Through the law, we come to understand that we cannot do what is needed to be right, by, right with God. And it points to the only one, the only person who can't. And this means that the law is definitely not in opposition to the promise because the law 
was what was needed so that we can see our need and so that we can believe. And read with me what Paul then says from verse 24 and onwards. He says, so then, the law was our guardian, guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Paul wants us to understand that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are to live under the promise. We're to live by the promise. We're to walk day by day by the promise and we need to stop being held captive under the guardian or under the law now just quickly here i want to make sure you don't hear what i am not saying or you hear what i'm not saying because i would hate for you to think that this means that we can soften or reduce the severity of our sin it does the exact opposite the law is actually there to expose our sin, to expose it and then to condemn it, to expose us and what our human nature is really like. The law is there so that we can know who we really are. We are sinful, we are rebellious, and we are guilty under the judgment of God. We are helpless and unable to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do that will make us right with God. And so we must stop thinking that possibly there is. And so some of us here tonight need to stop beating ourselves up about not getting it all right all the time. To realize that God understands that this side of heaven we can't be perfect. And so he expects that we will make mistakes. And when we do, we will turn to God and remember that because we are in Christ, we are heirs according to his promise. We are adopted as sons and daughters into his family. We're no longer to remain as slaves to our sin. And Paul has so much more to say about this, and he does in the next few chapters. And we're going to look more at this in the coming weeks. But what Paul does want us to know in this part of Galatians is how God and his promise makes it possible for us to be called his children, to be adopted as his children, to be heirs because we are sons and daughters of the promise. Read with me chapter 4, verse 6. Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. As I was preparing this uh, sermon, I uh, had a question about this part of this passage as well where I thought, why are we crying? Or why does it say that he spent, sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father? And Mike, at the beginning of the service, pointed out that it's kind of like a child 
crying to a father. And you may not have realized this, but this is actually the same cry that Jesus cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus cries out, he says, Abba, Father, all, the, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is a cry of Jesus, from Jesus to his Father, in his greatest time of need. And we also echo this prayer in our greatest time of need. For us, as we echo this, we do it in response to our sinful human condition, in response to our pain, to the suffering that we face. It's a, cr a cry out in response to the fact that we understand our depravity, we understand our wickedness in the face of our God who has promised to us his undeserved gift of grace as he draws us from death to eternal life. And see, when we fail to do good, when we fail to do what is right, we can either turn to God and turn to his promise and cry out to him, or we can turn into ourselves in despair. When we try to live the right way in order to be right with God, we actually set ourselves up for failure. See, when you're doing really well, when you're doing good, we feel great. But when we're not doing so well, the pressure gets to us. See, I know what this is like for all of us. We read the Bible or we hear a sermon and we naturally take away all the things that we need to do better. That's what we hear. We need to do better. We need to try harder to keep ourselves right with God. There's just more demands. And even if we get some of them right, more of them seem to pop up. And eventually, we will crash under the pressure if we only ever live under this law, the pressure will become too much. Now, I used to be a physics teacher, and so I love experiments, and I love these experiments that illustrate a great concept. And so I've got a video for us to watch of an experiment that I thought would help us understand what happens when objects do not cope with too much pressure. Let's watch what happens when too much pressure is applied to different objects using a hydraulic press. Let's watch it now. Thomas. No. 
love, I, I love those. There's 10 minutes of that. I could watch all 10 minutes, but that, we're not going to continue watching. I love them. I think they're great. But maybe that's the way that you have come to understand the gospel. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and think that the hydraulic press is a good illustration of what the gospel feels like in your life. Like you're just being crushed by the pressure put on you to do better or to be better. If this is you, I want you to know that this is not the gospel. What it is, is you feeling the pressure of the weight of your sin. It's not the weight of what God is expected expecting of you. It is the weight of believing if you only did more, God would look more favorably on you. See, if you're ever feeling enslaved or trapped by what is required of you by God, then you're actually trying to live under the law living by your own efforts and through your own works. And it's inevitable that you will either want to just give it up and throw it all away and walk away, or it will eventually destroy you. So instead of living by the law, please hear God's words written by Paul in this letter in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave. You're no longer imprisoned. You're no longer held captive under the law. But you are a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You are sons and daughters of God. You have received the free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. And so continue by believing that the final work of Jesus Christ on the cross will do what it is meant to do. Let Jesus Christ be the one who saves you. And let what you do account for nothing. But perhaps, for some of us, we don't feel crushed by the pressure. For you guys, you may need to consider, though, how you are actually contributing to this pressure for others. How you are explaining the gospel to others. Here in this letter, Paul is not just concerned about how you live your life, but how you treat others as well. And so I want to challenge everyone out here as well to consider whether or not you're spending more time teaching others what they need to do or don't do, rather than teaching them about the free gift of grace through the death of Jesus Christ. See, the corporate culture of our church is actually made up of the individual cultures of the people here. Our shared attitudes come from you. How we individually treat others is how we together are seen to treat others. And see, Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia. They are to continue to live by grace and encourage others 
to continue to live by grace, to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to hear about this free gift and understand that we live by this free gift of grace and not by works. And so, friends, here in 2508, we must all have this same culture. We must have the same shared attitude so that anyone, so that everyone who has anything to do with us knows that we are all unified in Christ and that they can come to know Jesus Christ and him crucified and that they will not be judged. Brothers and sisters, we cannot accept the free gift of grace in our own lives and expect others to live by the law. We are to support and build each other up, everyone who believes in Christ. And when the eyes of those who do not know Jesus look at our church, they must see us unified. They cannot see rules and rituals that we have to live by to know Jesus. They cannot see, as Paul puts it, us observing days and months and seasons and years. Rather, they must see a way of life that depends on Christ. They must see us boasting in the promise of God's grace as we live as heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us to live by promise, not under the law. We ask you to continue to work in us through your Holy Spirit so that we do not turn back to the way we once lived, but rather we continue to live as those who have died with Christ and are living by faith in your Son, who loved us and gave himself for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're not going to have a question time uh, this evening, but we're going to just have a few minutes, and I would ask you to just spend a couple minutes considering what was said, considering what Paul has written to the Galatian churches, reflect, and you may also like to spend a few minutes in prayer as well. The band will be up uh, in a few minutes to sing our last song.